Disputation Zusch, The Magicians of the Mountains. Is a podcast series about an annual conference scheme gathering scholars, writers, artists and scientists for a weekend of conversations and lectures in the Alpine Mountains. In 1929, the Davos Disputation takes place. Actually, this was invented to reinvent the tourism industry in the region, to bring youngsters, it as students, to where Martin Heidegger shared his decisively modern emotional approach, while Ernst Cassirer's educated incarnation of the established Bildungsbürgertum, a concept so specifically German it didn't even made it into translation, um, was clearly considered out of fashion. This debate became seminal only years later, after millions of deaths had sharpened the eyes of the audience for the initial sideline of the encounter, that Kassira was Jewish and Heidegger had later on declared his sympathy for National Socialism. This year's Disputations takes this encounter in Davos, this continental divide, as Peter Gordon called it, or Weggabelung der Philosophie, so a crossroads of philosophy, as per Henning Ritter, as a starting point. 90 years ahead in Susch, 40 minutes away from Davos, with radical movements on the rise, once again in times of disorientation and disillusion, we are repeating the question that led the historical debate, was ist der Mensch? What is it to be human? Disputation Susch from the beginning has been a multidisciplinary endeavor, bringing together scholars and artists, philosophers and authors, neuroscientists and historians, thinkers who will be asking questions and counter questions, circling around the possibilities for universal truth versus a relative view of human temporality and finitude, rational thinking and the notion of man as symbolic animals, creating a universe of symbolic meanings versus our being in the world, perceiving the world via our relationship to time. This vast theme is broken down into several more specific discourses concerning especially the relationship of philosophy, politics, art and literature. Between Kassira's Ausdrucksraum, Darstellungsraum, Bedeutungsraum, so that is room for expression, representation, meaning, and Heidegger's mental state of fear as a central point for existence, tentative explorations into the role of humanities and art shall lead to an exchange of potentially contradicting but still complementary interpretations and explanations of the world we inhabit. So let us contemplate and dare to dispute, agree and agree to disagree, infused, enchanted, and potentially infuriated by the experience of these tall, grandiose mountains around us, these massive presences of time, accountants from the past whose shriveled skin is telling tales, a unique scenery for some unique ideas to be formulated by us in a mix of humbleness and exhilaration. Someone called it a pleasant sense of horror that was induced by these Alpine fellows. Jean-Jacques Rousseau referred to the giddiness that he greatly enjoyed, quote, provided that I'm safely placed, quote, end. Sush is a safe place, a vessel for ideas. Let us treat ideas as suggestions rather than blueprints, and rather than seeking for answers, let's properly specify the questions in a first step. Episode 2, Point of View and Horizon. I want to start with an anecdote, and the anecdote is this, and I'm guessing most of you will know it. 
It's an anecdote about Immanuel Kant when he was very old, towards the end of his life. He would indeed die a few years later. Um, and it is an anecdote that involves his manservant, Lompe. Kant, throughout his life, had a uh, former Prussian soldier, Lompe, by all accounts, a tremendous idiot, uh, as his manservant. He would make him tea, he would announce what time it was, and he would do all these duties for Kant throughout. By the end of Kant's life, Kant was becoming a bit fragile, uh, and not in too, too good a shape. And he began to notice that Lompe was taking, taking abuse, was making uh, or stealing stuff, and was becoming, uh, you know, he was offering resistance, and he wasn't the good dump Lompe that he always was for Kant. And so at one point, I think it was 1802, Kant had to fire Lompe after 40 years of service, our, uh, our Konigsberger uh, hero, had to fire his manservant. This was extra painful, rumor has it, because um, Lampe and Kant may have well been in a sexual relationship with one another. Right, and so Kant is immensely distraught of having to have fired Lampe. And so what Kant, the great philosopher Kant does, is that he writes himself a little note that says, must forget Lampe. And he, he hung it on, on the wall in his house, to ensure that he would indeed forget Lampe. But of course, I think we can all figure out what happened. Kant would go out for his walk, would come back and would see that note and think, oh, Lampe, I miss that guy so much. And so the entire idea of him forgetting Lampe had the opposite effect. Every time he read that sentence, must forget Lampe, he felt you know, his heart explode. I imagine, I don't know, but I imagine with sadness. So what Kant does here, when he is, is writing this little note, must forget Lampe, is that he creates a particular universe of meaning, right? He creates a little, you could say, scenario, a little sketch, where he, he writes it in the present, and then I don't know, he goes out for a walk, he comes back, there's the note, right? So kind of a, a universe, a symbolic universe that deals, that becomes hermetically almost, like a feedback loop. Must forget, uh, must forget Lampe, goes out, comes back, ah, oh, shit, and, right? So it becomes this kind of feedback loop of Kant always being confronted with this. He creates a universe, and he creates it, you might say, to come to terms with something that he can't, that he doesn't have the abilities, that he doesn't have the capabilities, that he doesn't have the means to otherwise deal with, to reason about, which is this immense feeling of loneliness, of sadness, of fear. And so he creates a symbolic universe to come to terms with this. You might say, and this is what Heidegger would say, no, no, he doesn't actually create the universe to come to terms with this loneliness that he feels after Lampe's departure. He creates this universe precisely to evade, to do away with this terrible thing of this loneliness, right? Because the universe that he creates is precisely there to not feel, to not think about the loneliness that was created for him. And so in a way, we have, and I'm, I have to say, I'm, I'm treating these texts very loosely at this moment, but in a way we have here a very fundamental distinction between the creation of a symbolic universe, must forget Lampe, and its relationship to what it, um, what it pertains to, the, the actuality of this feeling, this gut feeling that Kant has, that I'm sure all of us have experienced at one point, this affective uh, reality. Um, because Kassirer says that we impose order, that we impose form onto the world, right? At a very basic level. Before anything else, we impose 
order onto the world so that we can experience it at all. Right? We have a particular order that we impose, and so it becomes visible for us human beings. I would guess that other animals and other forms of life might have very different impositions of those orders and those forms onto the world in order for them to experience it cognitively or emotionally or however. Um, Heidegger says that we are thrown into the world. That is to say, the world is there, and we are thrown into it. It's not necessarily a bad thing, right, this, this thrownness. But we are coming into a situation that, as we are thrown into it, already exists for us. Right? So it's an imposition, an expression, a spontaneity, versus a thrownness, a receptivity to a thing that's already there. So the imposition of forms always comes after that moment of thrownness and is in a way always a lagging behind, Heidegger says. So, must forget Lampe has to do with the creation of a symbolic universe and also with the escape of that universe, which is what Heidegger um, accused Kassirer of. It also um, is a universe that in a way is hermetic, right? It becomes this feedback loop that operates on its own terms, but it still refers to an outside. It refers to Lampe, and it refers to this feeling that Kant has about Lampe leaving, but it becomes a hermetically closed universe. Must forget Lampe, right? Like a game or something. He keeps going into this loop. It becomes a universe that works without Lampe's presence at all. Lampe is no longer relevant in a way, or the effect that Kant might have felt, the note has taken over. The symbolic universe has taken over the entirety of that. So it's hermetic, and yet has a reference outside. And finally, is the role of the imagination, of the as-if, of fiction, right? The uh, imposition of the as-if is a conjectural with a conditional. So the as, you compare one thing with something else. That is the if, and the if is in this case something that is not yet determined, right? The if could be whatever. It's a condition. And so you compare with a condition, which is to say something that may well be real, may well be completely not real, may never actually happen. Um, Kant treats the world as if it is this case, as if Lampe is to be forgotten, as if Lampe never existed. The universe he creates, in which Lampe exists, pretends that Lampe never existed, must forget Lampe. The outcome is Lampe should not be, you know, shouldn't be part of my system anymore. So must forget Lampe is important to me, firstly in relation to Davao, because of the relationship it's, it makes, the distinction between the creation of a universe and between uh, S, something that imposes order onto how we experience the world, versus Heidegger's idea of precisely the imposition in order to escape our primal condition of being thrown into it, of having no control over that world whatsoever. Lampe leaving and Kant feeling terrible. Second is that I think it suggests something about time, about temporality, which is another part of the dispute at Davos. Um, Kant posits in the present, when he writes that note, a statement about the future, which is when he imagines himself coming back to read that note, wanting to forget Lampe, and that, that statement about the future pertains to the past, right? Because it is about something that had happened in the past that Kant wants to forget. So in the present, a statement is made about the future which pertains to the past, which is an interesting sort of structure, I think. Um, because what Kant is trying to do, um, we're trying to, to use an historical account, a temporalization, precisely in order to live in an ahistorical moment. The moment in which all of that stuff with Lampen never happened. 
which all of that, those experiences that he had with Lampe were no longer part of the world. So a, a situation, you might say, without history. However, the realization of that future, every single time that Kant walks into the door, does precisely the opposite. It pulls into the present the past. It collapses them, right? So the present is here, and every time the present, the past sort of hits him, right? And so instead of creating an ahistorical, he creates a different kind of past-present relationship in which they, they sort of collapse into one another. Um, the reason that I, I wanted to mention this is that Kassir argues that time is one of the, the things that we make up. We, are, we express time. Time is one of those ordering systems that we, before anything else, that we, like space, that we already impose onto the world. It's one of the forms we impose. We perceive time so that we can live in time. Whereas for Heidegger, this is a different kind of ball game altogether. For Heidegger, finitude is a reality beyond that. It is something, again, that we are always lagging behind, always catching up. Uh, Heidegger talks about this as a temporal horizon. And I thought I'd, I'd talk a bit about point of view and horizon. So all of this was a very long way to begin thinking about point of view and horizon in our current moment. Because, to an extent, what we're talking about is the relationship between point of view and horizon. For both of these dudes, however much they differ, their humanity, whatever that is, exists somewhere between those two, those two parameters. Point of view, horizon. And point of view here, I mean literally the point from which I'm viewing. Right? So that's this place in this church, but also this body, this human body. Like all of us, I have a human body, which is different from any other, you know, a humanoid. We are all humanoids, right? Which are different from any other. So it's a universal kind of language that we have. It's a universal point of view, and of course, yet it is a completely individual point of view as well. But point of view here is this body looking at the world from a particular place. And so if I move, point of view shifts, but in that movement, as Merleau-Ponty writes, there's precisely, of course, the, the understanding of depth and of volume and so on and so forth, and of our body in the world. But so point of view and horizon, right? So if point of view is the place from which we see the world, horizon is the limits of what we can see, right? There's literally, Philippe Malheuvre writes somewhere, it is uh, human vision seeing itself out, right? It's the, the limit of what we can see. And so for Cassirer, and I guess a particular uh, mode of neo-Kantian thinking, we create time, right? Time is, comes from us, and for Heidegger, the horizon is sort of the starting point, and we are thrown in a relationship to that particular horizon. Point of view and horizon, and somewhere in between there, we find ourselves. We find our experiences, our understanding of depth and of volume, our poetry, of what we know and what we not, do not know, what we can know, of the imagination, what is beyond the horizon, which is implied, of course, by the very existence of that horizon, and so on and so forth. And so in the, what follows, I want to talk about those two things uh, in a bit more mundane terms. The human's relationship to its world today and some pervasive conceptions of time. This dispute, right, Kassirer lost. 
that's the, that's the sense that many of the contemporaries had. Heidegger won, and indeed what we see, of course, at the 20th century, at least explicitly, and at least in what we call continental philosophy, or what we call um, critical theory, or cultural theory, or art theory, or whatever, we see that those, those notions of Heidegger became far more influential for a while, right? These ideas of difference, of being thrown, and so on and so forth. Um, but in a way, both of these positions are, you know, are still there today, in equal measure, in a perverted sense, though, I would guess. Because judging from discussions in the 80s and 90s that I want to talk about now, but also from discussions today around the Anthropocene, we are still both convinced that we impose form onto the world and that the world is always there, beyond us, before us, and we are thrown into some kind of situation. I think the Anthropocene is probably the clearest uh, example of this. And so I, I want to see how this relationship between this point of view that is an expression, and between this horizon, which is ultimately also an expression, but also a limit, um, come back um, with us in the 80s and 90s. Because this is the period, and I've written about this quite a bit, in the 80s and 90s, we have what people call Tina, right? This is Margaret Thatcher, there's no alternative, or punk with the no future. Um, and then later, of course, famously, uh, uh, Francis Fukuyama with the end of history, I mean, it's, I, I don't know if Emil still remembers this, but right, Francis Fukuyama was convinced that there was such a thing as an end of history. I mean, he was in a long line of, of dudes saying this, right? Uh, Kojève and Hegel and Marx and all these guys also talked about it. Um, capitalist realism, which was popular a few years back with Mark Fisher. All these different notions that said, you know what? This is our point of view. This is where we are right now. And what has happened somewhere between the shopping mall and uh, the mirror, and uh, I don't know, uh, this capitalism and this uh, whatever, this gym, we've lost sight of the horizon. For some, that horizon, that limit of what we can see, is something that we've obscured, right? Maybe the shopping mall blocks it out. Or right, this or that billboard, like in a Wim Wenders film, blocks out how far we can see with our own eyes. For some, in a sort of a neo-Nietzschean kind of thing, we wipe it out, right? So this horizon just is suddenly, we're plunging into all directions at once, right? There's no more horizon to be seen at all, right? And this all comes, it seems, from this preoccupation with point of view, right? So for Thatcher, of course, she talks about Tina because she says, look, guys, we can talk, uh, we can beat around the bush, but uh, this system that I've got here, this Reaganite model of economics, this is the only way, right? Tony Blair later does that with the third way as well, where he says, this is it. It's not going to change. This is kind of the shit that we have around us. It's good, bad, whatever. Francis Fukuyama says, look, we've always been on this trajectory, right? This, this sort of Kassirer-Kant trajectory, but for Fukuyama's Hegel, of history, in which there is this sort of pattern, a pattern to nature, a will to nature, that eventually realizes itself, right? For Hegel, and I've talked about this so often, I feel bad saying it again. It's Napoleon on his horse at Jena, right? Hegel stands there as a young dude along the roadside, and he sees Napoleon coming in on his horse, and he's like, who is this guy? And, I mean, Napoleon didn't say it, but it was, this is Napoleon, and this is the Enlightenment, right? This is the French Revolution. And so Hegel thinks, in theory, history is the best that it will be. Our lives, our human sort of capacities, are fulfilled up to the most at this moment that Napoleon comes in. Of course, then all those heads went off. 
And you think maybe it wasn't the best time after all, right? Marx does the same, and then Kojève does the same. And then Francis Fukuyama, an American, of course, does the same, right? In those 90s, after the Cold War finishes, after it seems that there's no other ideologies left in the boxing ring, Fukuyama says, you know what? I think this is it. Uh, communism, gone. Uh, all the other isms, gone. The only le one left standing, liberal democracy. Right? And so Fukuyama said, this is it. This is that end of history. This is the moment where, in theory, humans have fulfilled their capabilities to the utmost. The pattern has realized itself. The end of history. This is a particular idea that follows a, a Kantian line, right? We have the power to impose form on the world, but apparently we have also, on a slightly different level, have the power to just, you know, to, to dissolve those forms, to suddenly have no more horizon, to all live in this eternal shopping mall where we can buy everything and have all those lovely coffees from all over the world and get all those things. And I mean, you know, I'm not condemning, right? I'm, I'm, I mean, <laughs> I have no, uh, I have as much principles as the, as the Marx Brothers. But so, this idea that you are at a place and you can no longer see the horizon implies that you, us, have killed it, right? We have that power, apparently, to kill off that horizon. Until all that stuff that made Fukuyama take back his claim. All that stuff that made Linda Hudson also, at the end of her famous and wonderful book, uh, The Politics of Postmodernism, in the epilogue, write, I've written all this stuff, I look up from my table, the world has changed, and she writes, so I've written it, but I think it's kind of over by now, right? So it's this, this idea that suddenly, apparently, things are happening that bring back the possibility or the necessity of a horizon that should be brought back, right? The Anthropocene, the financial crisis, all these things make our point of view, this point of view that we had, this point of view where we kind of, what we do, is that we draw the horizon into our point of view, where we say our point of view is the entirety of the horizon, it's what produces the horizon, and so we can also draw it back into our body in a way. Now you see people are beginning to push that horizon back out again. And so you get all those political movements, right? From Occupy to the Indignados, you get suddenly this, this longing for new alternatives. You talked, Alexander, about not wanting to see the future, and I also think this is a very good claim to make. And I think at the same time, we see a lot of artists that are creating those impossible futures, right? Yael yeah, Bartana and Jonas Stahl, those futures that cannot materialize, that should not materialize, and yet they are creating these possibilities of an impossible scenario, an impossible horizon, you might say. And so we see, after this drawing in of the horizon into our point of view, making a very limited experiential space, you see a kind of a pushing out of the horizon. But how do you imagine the horizon? How do you imagine the without from the within? And this, I think, is one of the key questions here. And one of the models that is helpful is Kant's as if, is to be conscious, far more conscious than Kant seemed to be himself, and far more conscious than Cassirer was of this, to begin to think constructively with this Kantian as if, the Azop. And there's a thinker who did this in the uh, late 19th, early 20th century, Hans Weihinger. I said, this was a crazy guy. So Hans Weihinger uh, wrote a huge book, The Philosophy of the As If, which is a wonderful exercise in, th in thinking, in which he argues basically through Kant that all science, that everything we know is premised from the get-go on the imagination, on not even a leap of faith, but a, an imaginative step of faith. Right? We have to imagine something before we can talk about something at all. The invisible hand of Adam Smith, right? as Weihinger points out, there's no proof of that. 
it's a fiction that Smith writes into his book, right? Might work, I don't know. I mean, I'm not an economist. Might work really well, but it's, it's a fiction. Or atoms, Feihinger says, fiction. And so he goes through the list and begins to describe, and this is where he loses himself. <laughs> he begins to say, look, basically everything is a fiction. There's nothing that is not a fiction. Um, doesn't help that Weihinger goes blind halfway during the writing of the book. And so by the end, he, uh, I don't know, it becomes a very strange exercise in which he, it's more about him no, no longer being able to see than it is about the fictions. But it's, it's, it was an important book because it's a different direction in Kant. Weihinger opens up with all his craziness a different direction of Neo-Kantianism, what you might say. And Kassirer, we know, was aware of Weihinger's work, but because he doesn't want to be tainted by that fictionalization, he goes elsewhere uh, following Cohen, his, uh, his supervisor. I mentioned earlier these temporalities, these two temporalities, of, uh, of Kant and Hegel. Uh, Gilles Deleuze has written uh, quite, a, quite a while back that there are three kinds of time, right? There is the time um, of the sun going up and then the sun going down, right? A sort of a cyclical time, a cyclical time. Every morning the sun comes up and you know, it goes down, we presume. Then he says there's linear time, right? There's a time that goes like this. This is the time, I guess, that we associate with Hegel and Kant and a lot of modernity. And then there is, the low says, the time of the eternal return. Right? And each of these times imply very different types of human interactions with time. Right? Cyclical time of the sun coming up and the sun going down, uh, Deleuze writes, uh, implies habit. Right? Every time the sun goes up, you uh, wake up, for example. Right? That's a habit. So habit becomes the measure of that time. With linear time, the law says that the measure of that temporality is memory, right? Because with linear time, you can no longer go back to the same with the cyclical, which you always return to the same point. But with linear time, you can't do that, right? Because once you're here, there's no way of backtracking, right? You've already progressed beyond that. And so the law says the measure of, of linear time becomes memory. You can remember stuff that you've done before. And then finally, the measure of the eternal return is difference. What is interesting is that Hegel and Kant are both on that trajectory of the linear time in very different ways. Um, Hegel says, as I said, there is a pattern to history, and by the end, this pattern will be realized. That's it, right? There's no bots. It may have not been in Hegel's time, but by the end, history will realize itself. This plan that is in nature for us will realize itself. Kant says something very different, and this is an important distinction, especially with our current uh, predicament. Kant says we should treat nature as if it displays, as if there is a pattern to it, as if there is some kind of guiding threat that shows us where we will end. And this is very important, this as if. In German, he writes mostly in the hätte, wäre, möchte, könnte, right? So he writes in this, uh, the Konjunktiv 2, this notion of this, this, this caution that he puts into his writing. Kant doesn't want to say that there is a pattern to history. But he says, and this relates also to the Categorium Paris, we should treat it as if there is one. He isn't sure, and yet we have to act as if there is a plan to nature so that we progress, so that we keep developing ourselves morally and so on and so forth. So Hegel says there is a plan to nature and it will, it will realize here, Napoleon or America or whatever. Kant says there is, there is, that we should treat 
history as if it exists, but it may not real, uh, be realized ever, right? This kingdom of all ends that he writes about, this perpetual peace, may beyond, be beyond us forever. It might not even be real. It might be a, a mirage, right? This is some of the, the things that the Romantics then take from Kant. So, there are two very different ideas of linearity, and this is also, I think, why it is so interesting to see Kant write must forget Lampe, because this implies all three of them to an extent. It implies, of course, the linearity, must forget, must not remember, must create an ahistorical linearity. At the same time, by seeing it every day, he creates a sort of cyclic um, um, situation, but it is never the same. Every day is different, and so you've got that inference of difference. The reason I'm saying this is because I think in terms of time and temporality, there's something interesting going on today. People have different names for this shit, right? Scenario planning is one. Uh, the time complex is one. Uh, risk assessment is one, right? In which you eat up the future, right? Shell calls these what-if questions, which is a good, good one, I think, in which you map out all the possible routes that you can take from here to wherever. So you have a kind of a rhizomatic, multiplicitous sense of time, but it is still a linear time. It is entirely a linear time, because you still believe that there's a progression, right? So it might be multiplicitous, it might be like the forking paths or whatever, but it is still a linear temporality. What is, I think, now happening a lot in contemporary art and contemporary cinema, for example, the new Blade Runner and uh, contemporary literature, is that people are beginning to rethink what that means, rethink what linearity, that is to say, the relationship of that point of view to that horizon means today. There's a wonderful book, a wonderful novel by Ben Lerner called 1004. And there's this story in 1004 that Ben Lerner tells uh, about Noor, which is a Lebanese-American woman that he meets working in a co-op. And Noor tells the story about uh, her growing up, that she had a Lebanese-American father and an American mother. I think it was Lebanese, I'm not entirely sure now. Um, and she, you know, she fully lived this life. She fully embraced this identity which is to say she went to Lebanese cooking clubs, she went uh, to be a part of Lebanese societies at university, and so on and so forth. She fully embraced this life that she thought she was living. That's to say she was living a very particular temporality. Went to visit in Lebanon, etc. Um, then at one point her father dies, and 10 years later or so her mom begins to date a new man. Um, and this man was uh, Bostonian-Irish. Relatively dark-skinned, but Bostonian-Irish. And after a while, her mom told her, you know what, that Lebanese guy was not actually your dad. This was your father all along. And so for Noor, in this book, this is, of, this of course, this, I mean, it's the sort of the textbook definition of trauma also, right? But this is a traumatic event. Because, of course, what happens for Noor is that she was on this timeline. And then, of course, suddenly she realized that she was on this timeline. That is to say, it is a linearity along the same lines of Kant or of Hegel, and yet it is also like in Mario, Mario Brothers or something, you drop a level, right? You suddenly realize you've been living another temporality throughout. Which is to say something different from what scenario planning does, which is eating up the future. Or a risk assessment, which is eating up the future. Or, uh, I don't know, any of those models, which are all eating up, preempting the future. Uh, because here, you live time displaced. So there's a displacement of time. So you are in time, you're in linear time, and at the same time, you're not in that linear time. Which is a, a sort of a double displacement of time.
So there's this thinker I just mentioned, Eva Shaper, who was very influential for a while in the 70s, uh, and seems all but forgotten, which I, um, as we all know, is something that seems to happen to female academics rather more often than to male academics generally. Um, but I think in this case has to do also with her insistence on Immanuel Kant, a philosopher that did become less um, popular in particular circles for a while. And she uh, takes from Kant this notion of what she calls aesthetic thought. And aesthetic thought is the following. Using concepts aesthetically is to use them in some relation and with some kind of reference to the things and situation of art and in general to what we may call aesthetic objects. Aesthetic discourse about art accepts implicitly that what it deals with is fictional. It accepts that what we are dealing with uh, constructions and devices with things which look as if there were something or other with statements which read as if they were saying or asserting something, and with configurations which appear as if their conjunction made a point. To think aesthetically is to think about those fictions, but it is not the same as thinking fictively. This general point had better be briefly discussed first. And then later she writes about this aesthetic use is made of when it serves not to describe things, but to disclose that such things construct and then close their own world of reference. Right? So fictive thinking is in a way when you say, when you're playing a game, right? As Kendall Walton writes, you play a game and then you treat this bench as if it is a fire. Right? That's when you are thinking fictively. It's what we all did as kids and I guess what we all do in a romantic relationships <laughs> every single day of our lives, right? You treat one thing as if it is something else. Thinking aesthetically is the thinking about those precise constructions. And the point that Eva Shaper begins to make throughout her work is that a lot of what Kant does relates to this thinking aesthetically. That indeed even Kant's first two critiques, and she goes through it with a brush, involves a lot of this aesthetic thinking. And I want to bring back this aesthetic thinking because I think it pertains interestingly to some of our current predicaments of what it means to be a, a human um, in a society uh, marked by the Anthropocene and by populism and all that stuff, right? Because I would guess that a lot of what we see around us in politics is precisely the same notion of thinking aesthetically but used as a political tool. Brexit is a crime scene, whistleblower Christopher Wiley remarked in 2018. Certainly, debate has long unfolded like a police procedural. First, the Leave campaign accused the European Union of criminal behavior for either interference in bureaucratic regulation or negligence towards hands-on policing of borders. Then, Remainers suggested that the perpetrators were right among us, illegally exploiting data and manipulating information. A crime scene unreliable witnesses, conspiracy theories, accusations back and forth, an absorbed audience struggling to piece together the facts. I think today even more so than when I wrote this a month ago. Brexit takes place on a crime show. True crime dramas, as the label suggests, combine documentary and fiction. The genre looks at real offenses, but through a partly fictive frame. One of the most successful true crime dramas of the past years, The Keepers, is a fly-on-the-wall documentary about elderly citizens investigating the unsolved murder of their erstwhile schoolteacher, Kathy. 
its trailer is indicative of its register. It features pixelated imagery of government buildings and monochrome stills of biblical statues, often with flies above, interchanged with bombastic title cards, abuse, lies, conspiracy, and it really looks like House of Cards, right? The entire frame is a mixture between House of Cards, all the president's man, and the good wife, so that all of us know that even though this is a documentary, this is about dudes not being fair. The disappearance of Madeleine McCann, and I really hope no one has seen this because this was a wasted few hours of my life, alleges to reopen the old case of a British toddler gone missing on holidays in Portugal. But what it ultimately opens up to, one finds out, is not new empirical data or witness testimonies, but a series of fictional plots filmed in the register of a suspense thriller speculating about a range of scenarios which may or may not have happened. And in other popular programs, such as The Case Against Adnan Syed, the spin-off of Serial, the podcast that popularized true crime in the 2010s, and the Making of a Murderer uh, series, the use of fiction is less explicit, but it is still the power of suggestion as opposed to evidence which condemns or leaves it to us, the viewers, to do so. True crime dramas share at least five assumptions. One, a crime has been committed, but it hasn't been conclusively solved. Two, the legal system is unable or unwilling to exercise justice. Three, filmmakers without police training or legal training have the skills as well as apparently the moral compass to expose that truth. Four, fictional devices are appropriate or in any case excusable means to achieve this. And five, fiction speaks to reality relatively unproblematically. Or at least no more problematically than crime scene investigations, police interrogations, witness testimonies, science, reason, deduction. Because those are the things that we have to presume were dealt with by the police and the legal system. True crime then discovers truth in post-production. Selecting, omitting and supplementing events, reordering, reframing and reacting them so that they corroborate a pattern, an anomaly or a clue. In effect, it measures the actual world, and this is where I come back to my point, through a fictional one. Certainly, Nigel Farage, Boris Johnson and their cronies are masters of this genre. Just think of the Leaves campaign very premise. The UK has been exploited by the EU, the status quo is in on it. Invested parties, proudly without expertise, right, this is one and two. Three, invested parties, proudly without expertise, and really proudly without expertise, right? I mean, this is the most wonderful thing about all of this, is that I think they're proud to have no skills uh, uh, in, in these matters. Proudly without expertise, promise to right the wrong, and there isn't a plan, but there is a story. And finally, there's certainly no reason to believe that that story doesn't have an happy ending, even if all evidence suggests otherwise. Throughout, the players have performed the roles of amateur detectives to the dot. Plain spoken, but with a wink, unpredictable, but with the pretense of authority. Politics has always been a narrative genre. It's the party or the person with the most persuasive story that wins. Once upon a time, scholars of political communication tell us those stories were long and complex. Today, they resemble an angry soundbite or an inarticulate tweet. What that now emblematic NHS ad blasted on the side of a double-decker bus, I don't know if you remembered it, all those 365, what was it, billion or million dollars, uh, pounds going to be spent on the NHS, uh, is that these statements do not need to draw from the same world as that they are addressed to. An important lesson that Brexiteers have learned from true crime is that because fictional worlds are epistemically ill-accessible, they are ontologically inconclusive. 
there are always spots of indeterminacy, as theorists of fiction call them. Stuff that is assumed to be unknowable, such as how many hairs a villain in a Sherlock Holmes novel has, for example. The making of a murderer uh, series regularly sets up storylines without resolving them and uses cinematographic devices of suspense, zooming in and out to suggest revelation, wrecking focus to imply that someone is being exposed, all the while amping up tension through the soundtrack. As negotiations for the UK's departure from the EU approach their final stage, we guess, the subject matter is still up for debate. It is a crime scene where the body remains to be found. Just as no one has taken to court for the killing of Sister Cathy, put in prison for the abduction of Madeleine McCann, or as in making of a murder or the case against Adnan Syed, exonerated beyond doubt, in search of a new narrative, everyone is judged and is made to look suspicious. These are scenes where the nature of the crime is decided on a day-by-day -day basis. Brexiteers generate suspicion not by revelation, but by the suggestion of revelation. Suspense, an inf infinitely extendable and expandable moment of uncertainty that accommodates every possible solution until proven invalid. They see clues everywhere, but to crimes that are as of yet undecided. And we should be concerned with how this sensibility establishes its own truths rather than with pointing out over and over again what is fake according to us right here and right now. We need to learn the rules of its fictional worlds because it is there that the answers can be found. Right? And this is Eva Shaper's point as well, that with aesthetic thoughts, it's futile to point out that something is fake. Right? If you talk about art, this would be ridiculous. Say, oh, it's fake. I mean, it's obviously not reality in the same sense that a news report might be. And so she says we need to use the concepts that we already have into a different key, into a different kind of register, in order, so we can, we can evaluate and we can um, judge the merit of precisely those fictions in different, on their own terms. And this is also, I think, what we might want to do here in this relationship between this point of view, this, this overexposed, this inflated point of view of those Brexiteers or of Geert Wilders in Holland or of Donald Trump or whomever, really, um, and the point of view that they seem to, to poop out. Uh, and, uh, and a different one every day, I guess. I mean, you spoke about farting. I guess this is also a series of farts that pretend to be the horizon on every uh, new day. Disputation Sush is hosted by Artstations Foundation CH and Grazina Kulczyk. It is chaired by Mareike Dittmer. Speakers at Disputation 2019 were Alexandra Mir, Timotheus Vermeulen, Tadeusz Slavek, Elisabeth Bronfen, Markus Steinweg, Jörg Heiser and Mark Sedler. Editing and sound design, Elena Caesar. The Magicians of the Mountains is produced by Museum Souche, Artstations Foundation CH. More information can be found online at museumsouche.ch.